This is the Talk Magazine podcast series. My name is Helen Walsh, and I'm the president of Diaspora Dialogues. DD helps emerging writers turn their craft into a career through mentorship programs, professional development seminars, and public talks and conversations. We record our events in order to bring the best of Canadian writing and thinking to you through this series. In this episode, author Zalika Reed Benta is interviewed by Chigbo Arthur Anya Duba as she discusses her newest novel, Frying Plantain. The session will be moderated by Chigbo Anuduba from um, the University of Winnipeg. He's a literature professor and also a writer. So please give them both a warm welcome. Yeah, um, thank you for being here. And Zalika, thanks for allowing me to moderate this, <laughs> this, this book. I, I read this book in two sittings and I am a very slow reader. So if I read it in two sittings of approximately five, six hours, it means it's super interesting. Oh, that, thank <laughs> so, you. That's super exact. So, like so, five, um, six hours per sitting. Yeah, because I had, to, I had to plan you know, how to right. schedule things. <laughs> but it's a, it's a very fascinating book. And, and when I read it, I, I thought what, one of the attractions for me was your title, Frying Plantain. Plantain is one food that I never get tired eating. If you wake me up 1 a.m. Yes. with fried plantain. Absolutely. I'm, I'm awake. I concur. Um, yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> so when I saw frying plantain, I, I thought, ha, nice. Yeah. So, and, and then I read this book and I thought there's so much about the process of frying plantain in the art, right? You know, the peeling, the slicing, the spicing, and, and, and the frying and, and all that. So, so my first question to you will be, pick us through your um, writing process, especially the process that came into what we have here as frying planting. So it's funny because like just before we came onto this panel, I, I told you, I'm like, if you're going to ask me about process, I'm just going to say what Norma said. I don't have one. Um, it's just like, oh, okay. But um, it's true. Like I just, I'm not a very disciplined writer. I don't really like sit down and, 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 and write for five hours or know exactly what I'm going, to, I'm going to write. I know that I usually start off with dialogue. So there's usually an exchange between two characters that comes to my mind. And then I take the story from there. So it starts off from that one scene and then it blossoms into whatever it is. So I, I don't really know what the story is when I start writing it, I just know that these interactions between these two characters is going to happen somewhere in the story. And sometimes the interaction is taken out by the end of it because it has absolutely nothing to do with what the story becomes. But um, that's like the closest to process I can really talk about in terms of like when it came to writing, actually like frying the plantain and peeling the plantain and everything like that. So I was in my master's when I wrote a bulk of this collection. So I was taking different courses. And one of the courses that I took was a food writing course. And so they, the instructor told us to like write a description of our favorite food. So I chose plantain. And so I wrote about peeling it and everything like that. And um, during workshop. Uh, for just the collection, a lot of the people were saying, so this book is kind of heavy and you don't really have that much like levity in it. Um, it would be nice if we had some levity. Uh, so originally I was going to have 
flash fiction, just like these short pieces of fiction in between the stories, that was like a moment of levity for the reader because I was like, if everybody's saying that, then I should provide them with a moment of levity. But then, and then I also realized that when there was a moment of levity in my collection, it was always revolving around food. So there was going to be just a story about Kara watching her grandmother fry plantain. And like, that was just going to be it. And it was just going to be like this nice moment between the grandmother and Kara. And then I was like, actually, I think I can just incorporate that into uh, one of the stories. And so I did. And then because of that, it kind of just became this other sort of, um, you know, meaning of watching someone from like Jamaica and like sort of like passing down through heritage and like being in sort of just as a diaspora child, as a third culture kid, not having the same sort of ability to do things that someone who's actually from that country would be able to do. And like, so I, and I thought that worked really well with the entire collection. So that's kind of how, that's my roundabout way of saying that's how that happened. It's interesting that it's something like a piece that sort of triggered all the other pieces that, because when I read this book, I, I thought this is a novel where everything connects in, in very interesting ways. And it's sort of chronological, right? You know, there's tracing of Kara's childhood through to young adult. Yeah, it, it, it's a very fascinating thing for me. But it reminded me so much of Sandra Cisneros's, um uh, The House on Mango mm-hmm. Street. Yeah. You know, the very impressionistic things, you know, plot is not in the way, but yeah, so that, what, what are you trying to do with that kind of impressionistic, and maybe I'm interpreting it wrongly, but I don't think plot is point, it is a character. Yeah, plot definitely wasn't a point, and sometimes it was like to the detriment of my stories, like in the early stages where they'd be like, my instructors would read and people would read it and be like, what's happening though? Because it's just like two people sitting in a room and it's like really interesting, but like what's going on? Like, what is the, what's the plot? And then I realized that I just wanted to write about people being people. I was like, I don't really know if there is a plot. I don't really think that's the point. And when you have a novel, like it doesn't have to be like, plot doesn't have to take over a novel, but plot has to be there. Also, linkages have to be there. I didn't really want to explain certain gaps that happen, even though it's in chronological order. You go from like nine to 13 to like 16, and then sometimes you double back. And I was like, I just, I don't want to write the linkages of explaining what was happening at that time. I just think that this is how it came out. Although I will say that when I had first, because I, even though it's in chronological order, I didn't write the stories chronologically. So the first story that I wrote, I actually thought it was going to be a chapter And I was like, yeah, this is the first chapter of my novel. And then my instructor read it and she was like, this is a short story. And I was like, no, it's a chapter. She's like, it's 20 pages. There's a beginning, middle and end. It's a story. And I was like, okay. So then I was like, I'll try to write another chapter. And it turned out to just be another story. (laughs) Um, So it just happened to be what I was writing. I wasn't really thinking about it. I just kept for like the first two or three stories, kept thinking it was chapters. And they were like, this is a story, man. So that's just. Just kind of happened. It's fascinating, very fascinating. Um, so I, I intentionally didn't provide a summary of the book because I don't want to kill the, the pleasure of reading it. It's it's a very powerful book. When I started, I was interested in where the story is going, 
And then I realized actually each of them can stand on its own and you can reshuffle them and have very fascinating stuff going on. But I want to take you to something in the story itself. I actually started from my last question. So I'm going back to my very first question. Okay. So it's, it's essentially on, on story. So near the beginning, Kara says this. This is a time when this character invents stories in order to belong. And she, she, she says, the words came naturally. And with every sentence, I could see the images of my story unfold before me, like they were pieces of a memory I'd forgotten. I told many stories at school, stories that made me the subject of interest, stories that took on lives of their own and allowed me to build different identities, personalities, stories that brought me audiences. So my question is, do you share Kara's vision of storytelling as something that we use to construct and reconstruct ourselves in different ways? I think that definitely can be something that you use stories for. I don't think I use stories to reconstruct myself in different ways, but I, I know of people who, who would say that. I think for Kara, it's just because I think Kara believes that she has different personalities within her and she doesn't know how to get them out except to lie. Uh, so she, she creates up all these different personas because I think at that moment in time, she doesn't particularly like who she is. Because, you know, she's seen as a little bit weak. She's seen as a little bit soft. So she, she decides to just create. Instead of, she doesn't necessarily like herself that much, but she doesn't know how to change. So the only thing she can do is project this persona. And so that's what she does. I didn't have that problem or don't have that problem, I don't think. So, um, <laughs> so I never really felt like I had to like build this like new identity or new personality for myself in order to, to belong. So um, it was interesting to write that just because I was putting myself in those kinds of shoes of like, well, if you feel like you have to create this completely other personality in order to feel like, you know, you really belong. Although at the same time, I think with, um, at least with childhood and teenhood, there are certain things that you do do. Like um, I had this, uh, this, this interview with Alan Neal recently, and we were talking about how I didn't like Destiny's Child as a kid, but you couldn't say that you didn't like Destiny's Child as a kid or else you'd be ostracized. <laughs> so I pretended to like Destiny's Child. And then when I went home, my mom was like, but you love Destiny's Child. I said, no, I pretended to like <laughs> Destiny's Child. Like, this is the whole point. And so I think things like that are, are things that most, if not everybody does, where like you want to fit in with a crowd or something. So you pretend to like something, you pretend to watch something, pretend to read something. So in that sense, I think that's, you can build a story around, around that, but that's as kind of far as I personally. Yeah, and, and that stood out uh, a lot in this book, you know, characters having to fake different things, fake um, accents, fake stories in order to belong, in order to get along with others in different ways. So what are we supposed to make of that? Because storytelling itself is, is a form of lying, right? It's fiction. Is it a form of lying, though? Like, I don't think it's lying. Because, <laughs> like, I'm not saying that. Like, I think, like, just creation and imagination, you know, because, like, you, you were even speaking in your panel a lot about, like, imagine possibilities and imagine worlds, but you're not lying. I think that it's just presenting 
presenting a reality that didn't happen for me, but it happened for other people. Like, yeah, so, so what's the, the, that middle line between lying and fiction? Because this is a character right. that invents from reality, her reality, right. something that never happened right. in order to long <laughs> you know right. that yeah. yeah and so so that thin line between lying and being creative is is what i'm asking oh okay well i mean with carish like she said that she killed a pig and she didn't really kill a pig so like there's a, and she creates a story about how she killed a pig but the fact is that she didn't actually do it whereas with fiction this person doesn't exist right so i can't lie about something or a storyteller can't lie about something about a person that didn't actually exist because they're creating their entire reality. So that is creation. I feel like when you're just, this person doesn't exist. I'm writing this person. This is this person's life. Whereas if I was like, so this is me and I killed a pig, but then you do some research and realize that I didn't kill a pig, then that's, that's fine. I, I found not just Kara's character very interesting, but particularly that thing she does this person who because in in my own life i've been in a fight before and i was thoroughly beaten and then when i was going to retell the story i was the hero of the fight and i really dealt with the guys <laughs> and, and here is a character i could identify with right <laughs> who can stand blood but can invent gruesome stories and she's the subject of these gruesome horrifying kinds of um, thing don't we pick do we need Faking, you know, fiction in order to navigate life, in order to belong. Like just personally or like writing fiction? Like do no, we just like in, in our lives, you know, what, how should we relate with that? Because it seems like a very common thing. We have to invent things in order to do things in, in the real world, right? Right. Um, I guess there's, there's some necessity. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes people say that they never fake things. Maybe that's a lie. But I guess in certain circumstances, like there's a necessity to fake something in order to belong. I, for some reason, I watch a lot of TV. So I was thinking about that Friends episode where Chandler doesn't actually think his boss is funny, but then he does like the Chandler Bing laugh because he wants to belong to work. And so then one time Monica's like, I don't really like Chandler. You like this Chandler. I feel like if you don't think he's funny, then just pretend that he's not, just say that he's not funny. And then he doesn't laugh at a joke. And then the boss looks at him and then Chandler looks back and then Monica starts to laugh because she's like, oh no, like I need to fix the situation. So, I mean, I guess something like that, where like if you're at a work function and your boss is telling a joke that isn't funny and you, you laugh because you want to belong or because you want to keep a certain camaraderie, then I guess that can be necessary. I have no idea if I'm answering your question. Yes, you are. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually pushing you to tell me what is your artistic vision and commitment. That's essentially what I'm I doing. have no idea. <laughs> I still don't know. We can go do this and I'll just be like, I don't know what my artistic vision or my artistic, especially since as a short story collection, it's different with every story. Like it wasn't just like this one thing that um, that happened throughout the entire collection. I did know, for instance, that when I wrote Snow Day, that I wanted to have a conversation about black girls talking about their hair. And then that story became about bullying and came about sexual harassment and all these other things. But I did know for that, my vision 
was only that one scene where I'm like, no, no, we're going to have a conversation where they're talking about how they can't get their hair wet. So like, yeah, but that wasn't something for like drunk where I was just like, no, we need to have this one conversation and then the story can be whatever it was. That wasn't the process for that. So it just changes with every, with every story, Mm -hmm. I suppose. There's another reason why it's just hard for me to pinpoint what the process actually was. To something slightly different, but still very related. So on relationship, this, this book has layers of relationships, you know, mother-daughter relationship in different ways, you know, Kira and her mom, and then her mom and the grandmom, and then Kira and her friends, the grand, grandfather and the absent father. And yeah, so what, what is the relationship work of, of the book? What are you trying to do with sketching these relationships? I mean, I guess many different things. I I was always really interested in this idea of like family and and not getting along with family, but still being like loyal to family because in that sense of loyalty, there's love in the different ways that love can um, manifest. So for Eloise and Kara, you know, there's a lot of overprotection and sometimes there's criticism, but for Eloise, she's not looking at it that way. She's looking at it as trying to shield her daughter from the sort of harsh realities that she went through. So for her, it's love, but it's just like, it's not being communicated in a way that Kara always understands. With Verna and Eloise, Verna is communicates through food. That's what she does. She cooks every time. She doesn't speak to Eloise for like months at a time, but every time Kara goes over, she gives her leftovers to take over because that's the way that she can show that she cares still. And I was also thinking about cycles because Eloise does that in a different way with Kara, where instead of it just being Jamaican food, there's a lot of fast food, but she still, if she wants to present bad news or something, or if she wants to do something for Kara, it's like, okay, let's go get McDonald's because food is how she knows how to communicate love that isn't also overprotection. With the friend group, I mean, I was just really interested also in um, the dynamics of teen girls. And what I, like I said, I watch a lot of TV and I grew up watching a lot of TV and I grew up watching a lot of movies. And there were, and I was bullied as a kid. And I remember just watching and reading things being like the kind of bullying that I've seen and I've experienced hasn't really been shown. Like, I remember when Mean Girls was like this whole big thing. And I was like, I can't relate to this because we didn't have a burn book. That wasn't what happened when I grew up. So I just wanted to write about the different ways, the different kind of like politics, because having a friend group at that age is very political and sort of like what the rules are of that. I was really interested in that. So that's kind of how those relationships came in terms of like the grandfather I was actually really interested in the grandfather's relationship with Kara because I was also, again, sort of that idea of family and um, Kara not necessarily liking her grandfather all that much, but still having a very kind of quiet connection with him. And I thought that was always one of like the more interesting things for me to write. I mean, it was interesting to write everything, but just this idea of not liking someone and still understanding them and having this implicit sort of connection with them and what that looks like. So that's how that kind of relationship manifested as well. So do you consider this book and the different stories, love, love, love story? 
In a way, yeah, I think that can be one of the ways. And, and the reason I asked is um, something you said about this love that that Kira doesn't fully understand. I thought that, in fact, that dangerous love, that was my relation with it, the Brandon Sheila kind of love, right. very violent, very sadomasochistic. And then it's there. They refuse to leave each other, very obsessive form of love. And, and it seems to me that's the kind of love existing between a you know, very hate-filled <laughs> hate kind of a love relationship happening between Kira and her mom and then between Kira's mom and, and the grandmom and between uh, Nana and, and, and the grandfather. Yeah. Why that dark vision of love? Ooh. I think just because... Well, first, I would have to say that there's also like a lot of positive love, I think, in the family. I think we're all, we were talking about like the challenging love and the negative love. But I mean, I did end up keeping a, uh, one of the flash, flash fiction pieces that I took out mostly, which is Celebration, where like, you know, Kara and her mother like have like a glass of Prosecco because Kara graduates high school and like, you know, they're, the, everything is happy and fine. And um, there are just moments of vulnerability between Eloise and Kara happens very rarely, I think, but it's there. And it all comes from a form of um, protection. I think that's another thing too. It's like they all are trying to protect the generation after them. It's just coming out in not necessarily healthy ways all the time just because of um, many different external circumstances. But I'm, I was also really interested, and this also comes out in like my reading practices and my viewing practices of like, love not necessarily always being this great thing. Like sometimes love isn't beautiful. And then I was also just kind of thinking of the way that um, teens view love in the case of Brandon and Sheila romantic love, because I worked at at the gap for a time um, because that's kind of what happens when you get a master's of fine arts and fiction. (laughs) Nobody (laughs) wants to hire you. (laughs) So you, you have to get, just different jobs. So I was working at The Gap and I was surrounded by a lot of teenagers. And like I said, we talk about TV all the time and the kind of relationships that they were drawn to were always like these volatile relationships because that's the way that they thought that love should be. If someone is like completely obsessed with you and doesn't want to let you go and me trying to be like, I don't think you understand the realities of what that looks like. So Brandon and Sheila kind of came from that where, um, where, where Kara's just like, wow, they must really love each other if they constantly threaten to like kill each other. But then like, because it would be worse to be alone and her being scared of that, but also kind of wanting that. And then that being paralleled with her not being able to be like emotionally open to the relationship that she's just starting. So yeah, I just thought that that was kind of fascinating the way that there's different kind of views of love. Personally, I'm drawn to that imagine not, not in real life i mean fiction <laughs> so, <laughs> i'm drawn to stories you know that imagine love in that in that sense because it seems to me that there's kind of paradox there every love story is usually a tragic story and in the, tra- in the tragedy is the love sort of found that's when we appreciate that love right Romeo and Juliet, the classic love stories, is tragedy, right? And it's in the tragic form. Yeah, so when I saw that, I I sort of connected with that thing. I said it's dark, (laughs) but but then it's love, right? A very protective love that could 
push the mom to, yeah. And then, yeah, it, it was, it was interesting for me. And, and I, and I'm I thought, <laughs> and I thought that there, there was, there's so much to do, to think about in terms of characterization there. Yeah. But my next question is on, on um, the location of, of this story, right? Mm-hmm. So the, you said the stories in um, this little Jamaica neighborhood mm-hmm. of Eglinton West and Mali, right? Mm-hmm. In, in Toronto. Yeah, which also evokes that same thing I, I found in Cisneros' book, oh, you know, this yeah. <laughs> uh, theme. Yeah, so, so what do you think is important about making place-based art? Another way is to say, is this place-based art? Are you writing about this neighborhood? Yeah, it didn't start off as, I mean, it did and it didn't start off as place-based because the kernel of this collection started off with a short story called The Building Blocks that I had written in the 12th grade because we were supposed to do a, um, an exercise on just writing about a neighborhood. And I automatically went to Eglinton, Weston Marley. So I wrote about that and then I wrote a story. And, then, and so that's kind of how the collection came to be. And, but for the, when I was in, um, because I did my master's in, in New York. So when I was in New York, the only story that had anything to do with place was that one story that evolved into what is now the story frying plantain. Whereas everything else was kind of just placed in this amorphous sort of any city. And my, my instructors kept being, where the hell is this? And I was just like, it's in a city. It's like, yeah, but where? Like I have no anchor. Like I just, I don't know where it is. And I was like, I don't know. I don't really feel like making it be in a specific Toronto neighborhood. And then I kept going back to Toronto, you know, for like the holidays or just like on the weekend or whatever. And every time I went back to Toronto, something about that neighborhood had changed or something about Toronto had changed. So that particular neighborhood is now like all under construction because of a subway that's going through it and stores are closing and people are leaving and it's not the neighborhood that I grew up with. Other things like the world's biggest bookstore and Sam Dorcas store, just various uh, Toronto landmarks are gone and being made into condos. And that really hurt me. And that really hit me because there's this sense of like when you're away from home and you come back, you want things to be kind of the same because you want to have that sense of familiarity. And that familiarity was gone. And I felt like just having that, I wanted to put the Toronto of like the late 90s, early 2000s into my book to sort of just commemorate it and kind of give it an ode and sort of just be like, yeah, like this is, this is just kind of what I think of when I think of Toronto. I do not think of Toronto as what it is today. So then it became very place-based just by virtue of me being like, nope, I want to put all these different street names in it now and, and, and stuff like that. Does anyone have questions, comments, questions? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Uh, I wanted to leave that for the last, oh. but since someone asked, we can allow that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I came completely unprepared. I didn't know what I was going to read from. You know, I'll read from, I'll read from Pighead since we spoke about, right. you know, lying and things. <laughs> okay. The pigs had haunted me for the rest of the trip. When we did things the tourists did, like try to climb up the Duns River Falls, I'd imagine the head waiting for me at the top of the rocks, the blue-white water pouring out of its snout and ears. And at Auntie's house, I was haunted by its disappearance and legacy. Nana kept me away from the kitchen in either icebox. 
Her normally pinched up face was smooth with concern, which irritated me more than it comforted me. But back home in Toronto, I told everyone about the head. At school during recess, I gathered all of my classmates around in the playground and watched as their pink faces flushed red with vicarious thrill. And you killed the pig? They gasped. You weren't scared? You weren't grossed out? Nope, I said without hesitation. It was cool. Was there lots of blood? Tons. I giggled and leaned in so everyone around me could make the circle tighter. I was the one who stuck it in the throat and the blood just came gushing out. Ew, they sang out, covering their faces, cowering from the image of spurting blood, dark and thick, and a slashed throat. They spread their hands out so they could see me through the spaces between their fingers. Did any of the blood get on you? Yeah, that part was pretty bad. The words came naturally, and with every sentence, I could see the images of my story unfold before me like they were pieces of a memory I'd forgotten. I told many stories at school, stories that made me the subject of interest. Stories that took on lives of their own and allowed me to build different identities, personalities, stories that brought me audiences. The only person who wasn't all that excited about the pig's head was Anna Mae, a girl one grade above us who had always had her blonde hair twisted into French braids. She just moved to the city from a farm in Kapukasing, somewhere in northern Ontario, and she'd already told us about the blind or sickly kittens they would drown in the river there. For the first couple of months, she was known as the girl who killed cats. And whenever she showed up at a birthday party, the birthday boy or girl having been guilted into inviting her by his or her parents. If there was a cat in the house, all of the kids would take turns holding it tightly to their chests or someone would lock it away in the basement for safety, always keeping an eye on anime and what she was doing, where she was going. But away from school and the neighborhood where we lived, the kids were as skeptical of my story as anime was unenthused, staring blankly at me as she had. Most of my neighborhood friends had either just moved here from the islands or had visited them so often, it was like they lived both here and there. And so none of them found anything intriguing about my story, not even the kids who came from the island cities and not the farms. I wasn't foolish enough to tell them I'd stuck the pig though. I knew if I pushed it too far, they'd find me out and their trust would be much harder to win back than that of the white kids at school. So what did you do then? We were at Jordan's apartment in her bedroom, sucking on jumbo-sized freezies and deciding which CD to play in the Sony stereo. Rule 336 or the Marshall Mathers LP. I was on the bed and lying on my back, my head dangling off the foot of the mattress, almost touching the floor, my eyes on the pink paint-chipped walls and the Destiny's Child and Aaliyah posters. I watched, I said. Rochelle, who was sitting at the study desk in the corner of the room, logged into a chat room, turned away from the computer and looked at me. Did you close your eyes? No, I saw the whole thing. And you weren't scared, said Jordan, inching closer to where I was lying down. Nope. Yeah, right. It's true. And when it was dead, I cut a piece off. Ashani laughed. Did not. Did too. Norris helped me so I wouldn't mess up. You didn't tell us about a cousin named Norris. Norris works for auntie and brother. Anita yawned, then put her hands behind her head. I still don't believe you weren't scared, she said. You can't even jump from the top of the stairs to the bottom like we do. Well, I wasn't scared of this. <laughs> The part you read also highlighted the next question I was going to ask, which is on identity, the different responses that Kara gets from telling this story to white kids in her school and then to her friends in, in the neighborhood. So my question, and I, I understand I'm conscious of what I already said earlier <laughs> <laughs> on identity issues, but so what are you trying to, uh, assuming identity is a very strong uh, 
theme that you had in mind while writing this book. What are you trying to say about that? Well, it's interesting because the reason why I asked the question about identity with your panel is because identity was an intrinsic part of it. It wasn't something like I thought of. I wasn't thinking of, I'm going to write this identity story. But growing up, I take care of from nine to about 19 or 21, kind of fuzzy around there. Identity is just kind of a part of growing up. So I wasn't really thinking about it as I was writing it. It just kind of came out because that's, I was writing a particular story. And, and I just think identity is a part of anything you write, no matter what it is. But for this particular collection, I was just saying how her, her friends are more skeptical. Her friends kind of know how things work. Her friends know her more than not like they don't know her as well as they think that they do, which is, a, I think, something that comes up later on. But um, they know her better than the white kids at school because at school she's coming up with all these different identities. She's never really herself. She doesn't really do that when she's in her neighborhood. So they're just like, you are not the type of person who would kill a pig. So I know that you didn't do like, what did you do? And so she has to kind of accommodate that by saying, well, I wouldn't kill it because they know that I wouldn't do that. But I can say that I like watched it. So she's still trying to kind of like con her friends. And so it's a different kind of belonging. It's just trying to be looked at as someone who's tough enough who wouldn't even close their eyes. Whereas I feel like with um, the white kids at school, she unintentionally exotifies herself and kind of, you know, becomes like this larger than life kind of person, because that's kind of what she wants to be seen as while not quite understanding the politics of that, which is why she doesn't quite get why her mother gets upset because her mother knows what the politics of that are like, where she's just kind of like, yeah, you're a black kid who's saying that you take pleasure in killing things. Like, I don't think, and then and she gets mad and being like, that's not going to help you later on in life, but that's not something Kara understands at that point. So I think I was just showing the, the different ways like this one story can like manifest in the different hats that she can put on by like one what Kara believes to be is a simple lie. Final question. What are you working on now? <laughs> I'm working on a young adult fantasy novel that's like 300 pages of nonsense right now. But it's, uh, it's essentially about a girl who can infect people with her emotions. What made you move from realist to fantasy? I've been trying to write a fantasy novel since I was like 13 years old. Sometimes I go back to like my Hotmail account and look at the different stuff that I had written and like variations of what I am writing now has I've been doing for a very long time. So I think for now it's just me like fulfilling my childhood dream of like finally writing this like young adult fantasy novel. Okay, so my final question now is on Kira's characterization in, in this book. So Kira Faust is a very keen observer of people around her. She often holds herself back. She's this very conscious person or self-conscious in, in, um, in different ways. She's at uh, different times seen as this soft child, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, that she tries to show that she's not soft in, in, in that sense. And and then later she's uh she she I, I found the part of her coming into this sexual awareness um very interesting. And as a guy, it's interesting, <laughs> right? My like how did you come about this character and the ways in which you imagined her development from a child, a girl, 
I'm growing up in this neighborhood, having to go to different kinds of schools based on the kinds of expectations that her mother has for her. And then having to go through this, this restricted kind of thing where she comes into sexual awareness and then into different forms of awareness. What's this character and how did you imagine her? Well, that was actually really difficult because when I first started writing it, there were all these different stories, but she hadn't come to awareness yet. And I didn't realize that that wasn't happening. But everybody who was reading it was just like, this is a really great story, but like we're in the same place that she was the story before. So like, I don't see any awareness, but none of us really had the language to say that yet. So we were just kind of like, something's missing. And um, even my instructors were just kind of like, I don't know, something is missing because like your story at first has my collection was only like 90 pages when I thought it was done. I was like, I'm done. And a lot of people were just kind of like, it's 90 pages. There is no way you're done. And I was like, no, but I'm finished. And it took me being away from my collection for about two years to realize that she was missing the awareness and that she should be finding different kinds of awareness outside of her family. So I actually didn't start writing the stories about her sexual awareness or even like her first kiss until like um, a few months before I sent it to an agent to get published. And so that's when I was just kind of like, yeah, she needs to find herself or when she does find herself, it's going to be in situations outside of her family that when she comes back to her mother or she comes back to her grandparents, she can take the awareness that she had um, that she had found outside of them and bring it there and she can have awareness within her family. So I think the important thing became to balance between what she experiences outside of the family and what she and how that informs what she experiences within the family, because at the beginning, it's kind of the other way around, what she experiences within the family informs what she experiences outside. So I think it was just a matter of reversing that. I still have two more questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, but I have uh, one closing question for you, which is, actually it should be two. One is, what did you enjoy most about writing this that you remember? The second, which shouldn't be a question, is do you consider yourself a Black, writer in Canada, a Black Canadian writer? Like, what's your own positionality in terms of identity and, and writing? The most fun I had, I love writing dialogue. So I love writing all of the characters interacting with each other. It got to the point where it'd be like seven pages of them just interacting with each other and my editor being like, okay, something's got to go. And I'm like, but I want it to stay. And they'd be like, no, I'm sorry. Two pages. Like, fine. So that was really fun. I do consider myself a Black writer. I don't have any interest in separating myself from that or from Blackness. What I feel the issue is, is when people try to tell me what Blackness is. That's what I push back against because only I can define my own Blackness. That's kind of my position. Thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this program. Please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast provider. If you're an emerging writer interested in receiving our open calls for submissions or invites to our events, please join our DD newsletter by emailing us at info at diasporadialogues.com with subscribe in the subject line. Thanks so much for listening.